Well, I was going to uh, skip 1 Timothy 6, verse 1 to 10. But the way the uh, scheduling uh, ended up lining up, uh, we could use uh, the extra day, and uh, it is useful in terms of thinking about how we view uh, and employ material things uh, as those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who now receive the, the Word of God not only uh, as the Word of God, but as uh, the words of our Lord Jesus, the words of the one who came and lived and died and rose again uh, for our salvation. Uh, and this is a subject in large part of the first ten verses of First Timothy 6. Uh, these are God's words. Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men, of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such withdraw yourself. Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out, and having food and clothing with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Amen, the reading of God's Word. Well, there's a, a couple of clues in these verses about how to read them in the context of First Timothy as a whole. Uh, when we get to the end of verse 2, it's uh, identifying the end of an extended teaching section where it says, teach and exhort these things. That recalls uh, back to chapter 4 and verse 11, these things command and teach. Uh, and so, uh, in chapter 4 and verse 12, a new section uh, began uh, that goes through chapter 6 and verse 2. And in uh, fr then from chapter 4 and verse 12 to chapter 6 and verse 2, uh, one of the main themes or one of the main ideas is this idea of honor. Uh, the elders who are worthy of double honor, those... Uh, those who rule well, especially those who labor in the word uh, and in doctrine, uh, about whom we heard last week in verse 17 through 25 of chapter 5. Of course, uh, Timothy himself was an example of those. And Timothy, uh, the last part of chapter 4 there, verses 12 through 16, this would be a lot easier for you if you have a, if you have a Bible open. 
uh, chapter 4, verse 12 through 16, uh, is really instruction for Timothy to treat his own office uh, as honorable in the way that he uh, conducts himself. Uh, but uh, in the honor of the widows in 5.3 and following, and the double honor of the elders in 5.17 and following, and the honor, the all honor of masters uh, now in chapter 6 and verse 1 and 2, there is a financial component. This is exactly the opposite uh, of the idea uh, that the the worker should resent that the profit of his work go to uh, his boss or his master, which uh, is one of the fundamental ways that work and employment and uh, bosses and employees, masters and slaves, although we uh, claim not to have the latter, uh, uh, that's one of the primary ideas uh, around which our culture views these things. Uh, that it would be wrong for someone to profit uh, off of my work, that I, uh, that I should resent if he profits off of my work. But the Bible teaches us exactly the opposite. Let as many bond servants or bond slaves as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor. Why? So that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. Uh, in the upcoming devotional on Thursday in uh, in Titus 2, uh, the last part of the opening section there of Titus 2 now, uh, Paul's going to give Titus instruction for uh, how to exhort those who are bondservants. Uh, and one of the interesting things is whereas the instruction for how to exhort young men really just uh, was one thing, that they be sober-minded, uh, and may God help all of our young men, um, uh, receive and heed and uh, live out that particular instruction, uh, there are several given to bond servants who find themselves in God's providence in a position that is lowly in the eyes of men, uh, but because of its lowliness, because of its undesirability to men and to the flesh, is actually a great opportunity to show the difference that Christ makes in the heart and life of a believer. Uh, and so what we see there in Titus 2, it's verses 9 and 10. Uh, yes, Titus 2, verses 9 and 10 has a parallel here. There is an opportunity to bring honor not just to your earthly master in terms of the way that you treat them and not despising that they are, uh, that they are profiting, but there's an opportunity to give honor unto God, the name of God, to give honor unto the gospel, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. Uh, how we treat people and how we treat people concerning money is something that uh, everyone just innately, intuitively knows uh, is important. Uh, mistreat someone in... Uh, in uh, uh, in financial matters, and uh, you will cause dishonor to your name and anybody whose names are associated with you. And how much more when it's God whose name has been put upon us. And so, this, uh, this instruction then 
uh, for bond servants to be glad uh, for uh, benefit to come to those who are over them. And of course, uh, if the one who is over you is a brother, uh, this, uh, this desire that they would uh, receive benefit by your labor increases rather than decreases. So verse 2, And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them, because they are brethren, but rather serve them, because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. Well, that which is um, that which is true, generally speaking, that we uh, that we want to live in a way that brings honor to God, and therefore, uh, whatever place God has put us in, whether that's place in the community or in the culture or in the workplace where you are under someone else and He's benefiting from your labor, and uh, if uh, if you've ever known, and I've known even many believers who think this way, uh, if you've ever known someone who is, uh, uh, was uh, frustrated because uh, they couldn't advance themselves, um, and yet the Lord was providing for them and for, them, for their family, uh, this liberates us from all of the resentment uh, of, uh, of someone else profiting from our labor of our uh, our not being to adva- being able to advance ourselves, uh, and that's important because this fleshly desire uh, for ourselves to be exalted uh, is something that bleeds even into the way we operate in the church, and it, it even bleeds into teaching in the church, uh, and the the combination of those two things, the desire to uh, to advance myself. Uh, by uh, whether it's doctrine or godliness or both, uh, and the greed uh, in terms of advancing myself in terms of, uh, of earthly wealth, those things are combined then, those two ideas uh, you see taken together in verses 3 through 10. Verse 3, if anyone teaches otherwise, and this is teaches otherwise, uh, concerning the whole of going back all the way to chapter 4 and verse 12. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, okay, so uh, we noted last week, for instance, that Paul quotes Luke as scripture. Uh, well, what is Paul saying here uh, in First Timothy 6 verse 3 about uh, this letter that he's writing? Uh, does he has he not just made a claim um, that what he is writing are the words uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ? If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to the wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, etc. Now, before we get into that, I want to point out to you that um, this idea of uh, what godliness is and how godliness is to be used and how godliness is to be expressed. That's the unifying idea of verses 3 through 10. And so you have a doctrine which accords with, uh, with true godliness, uh, and that uh, doctrine, that teaching that accords with true godliness, coming out of uh, the last chapter and a half or so in Timothy, 
is a doctrine that is very concerned with how the name of God uh, is honored or dishonored as a result of the way that I live. And then secondarily, am I treating others with the proper honor so that God's name will be honored uh, by, uh, by the way that I live? That's, uh, that's this uh, doctrine uh, which accords with godliness. It seeks to exalt God. It seeks to, uh, uh, to love my neighbor as myself. It seeks especially to love uh, my brother as Christ uh, has loved me. Now, godliness uh, has as one of its com- uh, 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 components uh, contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Why? Because if I have been redeemed by God for himself, then I have Christ. And now, in every situation that I'm in, I know Christ is the one who put me in that situation, and I don't need to advance myself because I have Jesus, and like we've been hearing in the in the latter part of Romans eight, these last few midweek uh, midweek meeting sermons, uh, if I have Jesus, I have everything. I don't need to advance myself. I actually can't advance myself beyond what I've already been given in Christ. Now that that literally all the creatures, every created thing, and every moment of its history is serving me because all things are for Christ's sake and he will be glorified in me. And so contentment is part of the essence of godliness, which means trying to use, and you've got to put uh, those air quotes on the word godliness in verse 5, trying to use godliness as a means of, a, of advancing yourself uh, demonstrates that what you have is not godliness at all. And this is something that will be especially um, that we can especially see uh, in how we view and use material things. What we do, uh, uh, what we do with money in our hearts uh, and with our hands. Well, going back and uh, picking up in a little bit more detail, then, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which accords with godliness. He is proud, knowing nothing. Okay, so this idea of uh, whether it's uh, critical theory generally or critical economic theory, uh, the idea that power is bad and what you should always do with those who are in authority is bring them down, um, uh, which is generally speaking, I know that uh, it's been probably a couple years since uh, since we had our class just on critical theory, that's just a, a summary. That the power is bad, and what you should do with those in power is, uh, is bring them down. Or, uh, or critical economic theory that those who, who are wealthy uh, are to be resented, or, or those to whom profit goes or uh, are to be resented. Uh, if someone teaches those things, uh, he says here uh, that they are proud and know nothing. Um, you know, so we have to be careful uh, about letting these things bleed into the church as uh, sadly those ideas uh, are in, in many cases bleeding into the church. Um, maybe not uh, here so much, at least as far as Marxism or critical theory, 
but there is always the danger of uh, verses 4 and 5. Um, so such a, uh, such a person is proud, knowing nothing. Now, obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. Now, uh, perhaps uh, you have run into people who, uh, who really like to talk theology, uh, and yet they are perhaps among the, you know, they are not uh, contented. So there are two types of people who, uh, who you may run into uh, who really like to talk theology. One uh, are uh, always upset. They're suspicious of everyone. They're envious. Uh, they're contentious. Uh, they revile others. You can see the list uh, in verse 4, uh, obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy. Uh, they're always trying to figure out you know, what side you're on, identifying uh, you as somebody so that they can know whether to resent you in their hearts like they do the, uh, the other person. Um, strife, reviling, evil suspicions. Now all of this, uh, all of this comes from an approach to theology that does not say, I have everything in Christ and everything I am belongs to to Christ for his glory. Um, but it views even theological discussion as kind of this uh, one-upsmanship uh, in which I can, uh, I can demonstrate my superiority uh, and, um, uh, and this is tied to then the same idea, not now with, uh, with uh, reputation and uh, interpersonal conflict or, uh, or, uh, or value, uh, but wealth. And that's to what, that is, that to which he turns in verses 6 to 10. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. When he says godliness with contentment, he's not uh, describing two things. He's describing one great thing, godliness and one of its necessary components with contentment. Okay, so if it doesn't come with contentment, it's not actually godliness. There's a faux godliness, a pseudo godliness, in um, uh, in the uh, the ones who always want to argue uh, about uh, theological stuff. And uh, ironically, or maybe not ironically, maybe uh, indicatively. Um, one of the, you know, in my own experience, uh, the ones who match the, the verse 4 and 5 description uh, in the way that they talk about theology have often been obsessed with economics. Uh, now, there's morality to economics, uh, but uh, you, uh, you have to watch uh, the way in which you discuss things and the way in which uh, they, uh, they arise in your heart. 
Uh, and one of the places we can see it even more clearly, more materially, is actually in the area of money. So verse 7, we brought nothing into this world. It is certain we can carry nothing out. Having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. You know, what, what he's saying here, and that it also works for trying to get others to think uh, highly of you, is that greed is kind of useless. Suppose you achieve your aim and you possess all of these things that you wish you had. You are going to be dispossessed of them at your death. And so, even if your greed is satisfied, all of its fruit will evaporate instantly uh, the moment you die. That's um, connected to what he was saying earlier about uh, the the false teaching in in chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Reject profane and old wives' fables. Exercise yourself towards godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little. It's not wrong. It's good. Uh, and money it's itself, wealth itself, is not wrong. It's good. But godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. And so uh, one, of the, one of the things that uh, that thinking about wealth helps us do is it think, helps it helps us to think uh, in eternal terms. Uh, and then, as far as uh, the teaching in the church and its use for taking the words of Jesus and living, of, uh, uh, having our minds conform to His, living according to His truth, and bringing Him honor, is very different than trying to figure out theology uh, so well that I can look impressive to others and feel uh, good about and, uh, and superior in and of myself. The two may end up looking very similar, uh, but they really couldn't be more opposite in nature. Uh, Dave. Well, there's, there's always the question of purpose in the heart. What do you want it for is, is a primary thing. I mean, there are some things that are evil in and of themselves. And so you can know that those things are evil. Um, but the, the desire just to be extra comfortable or to have more things for the purpose of having more things or the desire for status. Uh, in uh, in our well, actually, I don't think it's unique to our culture. Uh, there are many things that uh, possessing them is uh, is an indication of status, and so seeking to uh, to increase uh, your uh, your status over others. So a, a lot of this is um, 
humility under God, first and foremost. Right? There's something very different. Uh, there's, a, there's a significant difference with God has given me everything I have. I am glad to enjoy it. I don't think enjoying it is a bad thing because the God who gave it to me is good. So I seek to enjoy him in it. But if I'm seeking to enjoy him in it, I really don't need to accumulate more in order to enjoy. I already have him. Right? So there's there's a contentment that comes from a right view of what you already have. As far as uh, desiring more uh, or gaining more, whether by work or trade or, uh, or some other good and proper means uh, by which God has given us uh, to acquire wealth, uh, what is the purpose of that wealth? Now, enjoying God is part of the purpose, but we didn't even get to uh, a more significant purpose, serving the Lord by doing good to others. Now, uh, in, uh, in next week, uh, Lord Willing's uh, section, uh, in verses 17 through 19, we're going to deal a lot more with the purpose of more wealth than you need, more than the food and clothing with which we shall be content. Because there are purposes for that. But the purpose especially is good works. Right? Good works first to uh, first to my own household, which you have to think multi-generationally right in light of all that we've studied about wealth uh, in Scripture so far. You're, you're thinking about your children and your grandchildren, um, you know, generations yet unborn. Um, uh, as well, uh, but your own household first, and the household of God um, uh, second, uh, and then your your neighbor who uh, is near you, whom the Lord has assigned to you by the by the providence of, of connecting uh, your life with theirs in time and space. Uh, but the desire for more in and of itself apart from enjoying God himself in it which really the the greed or the covetousness is is quite incompatible with that because I can enjoy God in bread and water if that's what he's assigned to me today and I ought to um, but really as far as uh, service of the church uh, service a uh, service of my family and you're not serving your family well either if you if you are desiring that they uh, live in luxury and comfort and be self-indulgent and uh, that's not service to to, to your family there's there's uh, a, a lot that's in, uh, involved here yeah yeah
Um, the application of the biblical principle is something that really takes place at, at the heart level. And as far as always wanting something nicer, you know, that probably is evil, to always want something nicer, right? So, so if just having nicer things for the sake of having nicer things, right, there's, there's, a, there's a heart question there. I, I can't answer it for you. I can give you pastoral counsel, which is always be suspicious of desires for stuff. Never be suspicious of a desire to serve your neighbor more or to serve the church more. You know, I, I don't have to wonder if a desire to sacrifice myself for the good of my brother is coming from the flesh. Um, it's a lot more likely that the desire for nicer pictures on the walls is coming from the flesh. But your desire to serve your brother maybe does for the wrong reasons to get harder to yourself. Yes, if you're seeking to advance yourself, I mean, your, your heart is going to be deceitful uh, above all things. And so, uh, you know, the, the one who desires the office of an overseer desires a good work. But there are many who are in the midst of a good work who seek to advance themselves, whether to placate their conscience before God or to feel better uh, about themselves and themselves or to be uh, more highly esteemed of others. You know, you're not going to get... Uh, out of this passage or, or any other uh, 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 silver bullet for how to be sinless in, in doing something. And certainly not for a silver bullet for how to be sinless in uh, uh, acquiring greater earthly things. Yeah, Hone. Um, one of the things that struck me here, the illustration that you make, I remember when I was a younger minister, um, I really desired that I had desired that very much. But God never didn't grant that particular request. And I think that's really what you were saying before that with contentment comes into it because I had to learn to be content with what God had given me and it was when I became content with what God had actually given me that he showed me an alternative way by helping other people to become involved in the work um, that it could actually Yes, absolutely. The, the great part of contentment is to be content with Christ. There's nothing wrong with um, working hard and being wise to increase what you have. But if the desire to increase is connected to discontentment in any way, 
then you are falling into. I mean, uh, if you've got your Bible open, um, you know, read verses 9 and 10 and see how dreadful a desire to be rich is, how spiritually dangerous that is. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and to and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So the, the desire to be rich is different than working hard and knowing and hoping for the good that you would do if the Lord blesses it. And you do hope that the Lord blesses it. And if he does blesses it, then you, you receive that too as from his hand and you do good with that which, which he has given you materially. Um, and being rich is not wrong. Verses 17, um, verse 17 through 19 are going to deal uh, specifically with the rich. But there is this very dangerous desire that rises in our hearts uh, to have uh, much of the things in this world. Now, God has just so ordered his world that being hardworking and not being self-indulgent, being frugal, uh, being well organized uh, and taking good care of things, all of these aspects of stewardship, they do, they are ordinarily in its providence blessed unto wealth. I mean, if you are following the wisdom of Proverbs, if you uh, are making good application of the Eighth Commandment, uh, you ordinarily, and it isn't true 100% of the time. There are many godly who end up with very little comparatively uh, as far as the things of this world are concerned. But if they're godly, then the one with little and the one with much have the same contentment because both have Christ. And how much can the wealth of the one who has much add to a contentment that is satisfied with Christ? And how much can the, the scarcity of the one who has little take away from him if he has Christ. Now the one with little has less material opportunity to serve the Lord. The one who is rich, if he has the same contentment, he will view his wealth as increased material opportunity to serve the Lord. But the one who thinks that his life will be improved by riches, even though he has Jesus. That impulse of the heart is what's being warned against here. Uh, I don't know how to give a more, you know, I don't have any, uh, any paper to give you that'll turn red if your desire for wealth is bad and blue if the desire for wealth is good. There's not, there's not an easy litmus test. 
I think in the course, uh, in the in the context of verses three through ten here, uh, recognizing what we're doing with our stuff is the easy one. The more difficult one, I, I think, is um, uh, is the one in verses uh, three through five. Uh, although the the fruit is easier to to identify. I mean, if you have a theological discussion with somebody and you're convinced that they're wrong and you come away with a heart full of bitterness and uh, you know, despising and, um, and with uh, personal contention, then you're on the wrong side of the uh, theologizing in verses 3 through 6. I mean, you might have been on the right side as far as whatever particular doctrine was being discussed, but you yourself personally were not on the right side. But if you're desiring that Christ would be honored and you desire the good of this brother, and you still love him, and you uh, and your heart is going up in prayer to him, there's been no loss of affection. If anything, your heart is all the more warmed towards him because you feel like he's... He's stuck in a um, in an ignorance or in a falsehood. You know, that one, so that's uh, easier to see by its fruit. Um, you know, which you can see in verse four, the from which come. But uh, but a desire for self advancement, a discontentment, uh, is going to be seen. Uh, I think very easily in uh, in how we view this world and the wealth that we have in it and what we do with it. I mean, the the material world is created so that image bearers can image God by being orderly, fruitful, and generous. You know, God uh, God brought order out of disorder. He made the world fruitful, and He did it out of generosity to His creatures. And then he puts his image bearer in it. And what are we to do? We're to take dominion. We're to be uh, orderly and we're to be fruitful. Uh, and one of the ways that we especially image God is by generosity. Well, the renewed image bearer, renewed into the image of Christ, is going to have all of those same things uh, with, regard, uh, with regard to wealth. The thing that especially gets added by the example of Christ is self-sacrifice. In Jesus, God shows himself as the self-sacrificing God. And that adds one more big principle for the Christian for how do I, what do I do with my wealth, right? And that's first commandment, second commandment, great, uh, third commandment. First great commandment, second great commandment. Love God with my wealth. Love my neighbor with my wealth. But then there comes this third great commandment is because it's not love my brother as I love myself, it's love my brother as Christ has loved me. And so you've got the Philippians 2 principle of now that now that we are in the church of Jesus Christ and that we are uh, conscientiously aware that we're united to him, um, self-sacrifice. Now he doesn't allow us to uh, to sacrifice our family, 
If you sacrifice your family, you've denied the faith and are worse than an unbeliever. So there, you know, there, are some, there are important things, and it applies to a church family in a more broad sense. But one of the things that a husband and father who is convicted about these things uh, needs to be able to distinguish is the difference between sacrificing my family for the church, whether that means financially or otherwise, and leading my family in our sacrificing together. So that, you know, we're, we're not harming ourselves, but we're denying ourselves. Those are two different things. Uh, and a family that can sacrifice together with a good will uh, for the service of the body is doing better uh, than a family that, uh, you know, just indulges itself in all things. And uh, if there's a little bit left over, then you know, we give that to the church. Or, or whomever. So these are these are. Uh, these, I mean, it's an important question. Um, it ought to be a searching question for a twentieth or twenty-first century American. Almost never in the history of the church have believers been as wealthy in material things as the believers among whom. Most of us have, have had the great majority of our lives. Um, so there's, on the one, one, one hand, great opportunity to use wealth in a way that says, not just first great commandment, second great commandment made in the image of God, but third great commandment redeemed into the image of Christ. But there's also all of these dangers uh, that come with it too. Which is why, uh, which is why verses seventeen through nineteen uh, are going to be uh, so important. Uh, but yeah, I, I I think the after all of that, Dave, the 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 big question is to ask your heart why. Your heart desires something. You say you ask yourself why. And um, and our hearts are very complex. So even in the asking of why, according to the Bible, the the Lord will use that to improve the why. You're not static, right? You so if you have a mixture of motives, and you ask yourself why, immediately you, you're you're already kind of before God and and by the help of your of his spirit, uh, you're going to be improving your own purposes because they don't necessarily stay the same. All right, we need to uh, close. Verse 17 through 19 next week, and then uh, I think at that point we will be done with the teaching portion, uh, and we'll take uh, one Sabbath school class to go over the... Um, uh, the church order for how to proceed uh, from there. Our gracious God and our Heavenly Father, we're so grateful to you that you have given yourself both for us and to us in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. 
who though he was rich for our sakes became poor. And so we praise you for your indescribable gift. We do ask that you would help us by your spirit so that we would show forth your glory, O God, who have made us in your image. And so that we would show forth the glory of the Son, your Son, our Lord Jesus, who has redeemed us into your image and to whom and to whose image now we are being conformed. Keep doing that work, we pray, and as you have given us much in terms of material things, we do pray, Lord, that you would help us to mortify desires and purposes and pleasures that come from the remaining flesh from our first, from the first Adam. But we pray, O oh Lord, that you would grow in us those desires and purposes and pleasures that are from our Lord Jesus, the last Adam, that we might well enjoy you and that we might well glorify you. For we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.